0: I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We are in a series in the Gospel of Mark, and this morning uh, we'll be looking at Mark chapter 8, verses 22 uh, to 26. Verses 22 to 26. And so I'll give you just a moment to turn there. Um, If uh, you don't have your Bible with you this morning, I encourage you to grab a copy that you should find in a chair in front of you. Underneath the chair there, you'll find a copy of the Scriptures, and you can find... Our passage on page 844, 844 of the Bible that's in the chair in front of you. So I will read for us Mark chapter 8, verse 22, and I'll read through to verse 26. Hear God's word. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank You so much for uh, Your Word, and Lord, we thank You again for the opportunity to gather together and to consider Your Word, and even as we've sung this song, Give Me Christ or Else I Die, we are just reminded how serious and significant it is to hear the Word of God. And Lord, we come before this time, and I pray that You would give us a sense of that Reality of just how precious it is to hear your word and how desperate we are to hear it and how much we need Christ. And Lord, I pray that in coming with that sense of, of reverence and that sense of seriousness and awe, Lord, I pray that, as I trust we will, that we will experience your full and lavish provision, and that we will know that as we come to your word and as we are eager to hear that You are so faithful and gracious and good to provide all the mercy and all the grace that we need. And so, Lord, we come to this time eager and expectant. And it's through Christ we pray. Amen. Well, the Gospel of Mark is divided into two main sections. Uh, Chapters 1 through 8, which we've been working through, are the first part of the Gospel of Mark and really focus on the reality that Jesus is the kingly Messiah. He is the Messiah who holds all power and all authority, and He has come to rule and to reign. And as we come to the end of chapter 8, which we will be doing in a few weeks, and then as we pick up in chapter 9, really even in chapter 8, but then especially going into chapter 9 and the rest of Mark, so kind of chapter 8 all the way through Mark 16, there's this dramatic shift that takes place, and really what we see in the second part of Mark's gospel is that Jesus is the suffering servant. That not only is he the kingly Messiah who holds all power and authority, but he has come to suffer for his people. Now, as we close out the end of chapter eight, we really come to the pinnacle of this first section, which we will see uh, next week and the following week, in which Peter will make the great confession. Jesus will ask his disciples, Who do you say that I am? And Peter makes the great confession, which is the pinnacle of these first eight chapters, in which Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now our text this morning is really a precursor to that great declaration which is to come. Okay, So our text this morning is a precursor to Peter's great confession. And what we see this morning is that in the healing of the blind man, what we will see is we will learn something here about how Peter came to make this great confession of faith, And by implication, we will learn how anyone comes to know and follow Jesus. Okay? So the great confession is to come. We'll see that in the next two weeks. And this is the precursor. And in this precursor, in this miracle, the healing of the blind man, we'll see how Peter comes to make this profession of faith and how anyone comes to know and follow Jesus. With that in mind, I want us to consider our passage in three parts. First of all, a physical healing. Secondly, a spiritual healing. And then third, a spiritual truth. Okay, so that's the outline we're going to follow this morning. First of all, a physical healing. Look there in chapter 8, verse 25, and we read these words. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this point, but I do want us to... Uh, to settle on this just for a moment as we are coming to the close of the end of the first section in Mark's Gospel. I don't want us to miss this. If, if you recall, Mark's Gospel opens with Jesus in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, coming into Galilee, and it says there in Mark chapter 1, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the Gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe In the gospel. So, right away in Mark's gospel, we get this picture of Jesus coming, and he is the king, right? He's the great kingly Messiah, and he is declaring his kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand, and I am the king. And so he's ushering in his kingdom. And in ushering in his kingdom, what he's doing is he's ushering in his redemptive rule and reign. Jesus is declaring, I am the king and I have come to make all things new. My kingdom will restore and make all things new. And in Jesus making that declaration it should cause our hearts to sing. We should rejoice in that declaration because we realize that there is something dreadfully wrong with this world. We see it all around us, right? We experience it, our own personal sin, the sin of others, sickness, disease, death. There is something dreadfully wrong about this world. And Jesus, in making this pronouncement, is declaring that He has come to restore, to renew, and to create, recreate the cosmos. Now what we've seen so far in the Gospel of Mark, as He has come and declared Himself to be the King, who is bringing in His kingly, redemptive rule and reign, is that Jesus performs miracles, right? And part of the reason why Jesus performs these physical miracles is as a symbol... To us, a foreshadowing to us of the full restoration that he will bring about when he comes ultimately to restore all things. And so, Mark, as we've seen in the Gospel of Mark, he records accounts and healings of Jesus casting out demons and healing the blind and the lame and even raising the dead. And in all of these examples, Jesus is saying, I'm the king, I have kingly power, I'm coming to restore and make new. And so in this passage here in Mark that we're looking at this morning, Mark tells us that there's some people and they bring a blind man to Jesus and they beg Jesus to touch this man. We don't know whether the man was blind from birth or there was something later on that caused blindness in his life. Nevertheless, at this point, the man is blind. He could not see. We can imagine he could not see the beauty of the sunrise. He couldn't see the beauty of various Shades and hues of colors. He could not see the faces and the smiles of his family and friends. He could not see Jesus, the man who was standing before him. But upon Jesus' touch, as the passage says, Jesus laid his hands on his eyes, the man's sight was restored. And it was restored completely and entirely so that Mark records he saw everything clearly. Now here we are reminded again in this example of Jesus healing the blind man that Jesus possesses the power to reverse the physical consequences of the curse of sin and to restore His creation to wholeness and completeness. In a moment we're going to shift and, and, and see that this has spiritual implications, but just for a moment, as I mentioned earlier, I want us to pause and remember that oftentimes we are tempted to only focus on the spiritual, but we should not forget that Jesus' redemption is not only spiritual, but it is also physical. And in fact, this is in contrast, this Christian worldview is in contrast to many other worldviews and philosophies, which teach that the spiritual and the immaterial is good, but the physical and the material is inherently evil. Now there are many philosophies and worldviews that teach that idea. But Christianity stands in contrast and in fact affirms that the physical and the spiritual God created for good and He will restore and make all things new, including the spiritual and the physical. So listen, my friends, understand this. And it's a remarkable claim that Christianity makes. Jesus came not only to redeem your heart, but also your body, and in fact, all of creation. Now, you might not think this is that big of a deal, especially if you're in good health. But consider that one of, you know, we're going to be voting this week for um, president, And consider that one of the most significant issues in this presidential cycle and this election is the matter of health care. How will we as a society, as a just society, how can we best attend to the many and various health issues that we all face? And there's different opinions about that. Different people structure, uh, have different plans that they structure in terms to answer those problems. But we all agree that it's a significant problem, right? In fact, I think it's said that over 50% of bankruptcies in America are related to health cost. Paul says, and listen, I just want you to know, I'm not advocating for one candidate or the other, okay? Just pointing out, it's a significant issue. Paul himself says, our bodies are wasting away, right? That's what he says. Some of us feel that more keenly than others, Right? but we recognize, we see it all around us, that it is a significant issue. And here is Jesus, and, and, and here he is, he sees this man who's blind, and he doesn't just bypass the blindness and go right to his heart, right? But Jesus touches the man and gives him sight. Why? Because the kingly Messiah, the one who holds all power and all authority, He hasn't just come to redeem our hearts and our souls, but He's come to redeem our whole person. He's come to redeem us physically as well. So by implication, we also as Christians should care and minister to those who face physical trials and suffering, right? We shouldn't simply bypass the physical and go straight to the heart or the soul, but we should care for those who are face many physical ailments or difficulties in this life. And as Christians, listen, my friends, we do, as Paul says, we, we, we sense that our bodies are, are wasting away. I mean, we get to a certain point in our lives and we realize it's not going to get better. It's just going to get worse, right, physically. And so that is, in many ways, living in a fallen world under the curse of sin. That is our experience on a daily basis. But the promise of the gospel is that there is something coming. There is something coming when Christ will return and He will rule and reign and His redemptive power will be fully made known. And all of creation, not just the spiritual, but also the physical, will be redeemed. And we will be given new bodies. There will be no more blindness. There will be no more pain. There will be no more ailments and debilitating diseases, and there will be no more death. For the kingly Messiah will rule and reign over all creation and make all things new. Well, the second thing we see here in our text is a spiritual healing. So that's a physical healing. Secondly, a spiritual healing. Look there again in chapter 8, verse 25, same verse we read, Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Now, at first, when you read this, perhaps it seems that this is merely a physical healing. okay? And that's, that's all that Jesus is accomplishing. That's all Mark's intending to communicate that Jesus has the power over creation to physically restore someone's sight. But if you see this miracle in the context of chapter 8, you recognize that there is something more here. In fact, one of, and if you've been here for the series, you know this. If not, I'll fill you in. But one of the primary themes of chapter 8 is spiritual blindness. That's what we've been seeing in Mark chapter 8, is that in spite of Jesus' teaching and in spite of His miracles, folks do not see Jesus for who He truly is. And this blindness is pervasive. It is universal. So you might remember earlier in Mark chapter 8, there are a number of examples of people who aren't getting it, who are spiritually blind. The disciples, the Pharisees, Herod. They are all pointed out as those who are spiritually blind. They're not getting it. They're not getting who Jesus is. And the point is, in Mark pointing out all of those various groups not getting it, is that this type of spiritual blindness is pervasive. It's universal. It includes everyone. Even the disciples are not spared. Later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, later on in the Bible that is, The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the church in Corinth and he speaks of the spiritual blindness that humanity experiences as a whole. And this is what he says in those verses. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory, I'm sorry, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So do you see, do you hear there the description that Paul gives to humanity as a whole who is unbelieving and unrepentant? The gospel is veiled to them. They cannot see it. That's the language he uses. And why? Because the God of this world, which is a reference to Satan, has blinded, there it is again, the minds of unbelievers. Paul says this is the condition of everyone who is outside of Christ, blind without sight, lost in darkness, unable to see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the scriptures teach us that the reality of spiritual blindness far surpasses the tragedy of physical blindness. Now, initially, I know that this is offensive. None of us like to admit that we don't see or understand or grasp things the way that we ought to. And so this inherently is naturally and naturally is offensive to us when we first come across this truth. But it is, the Bible teaches us, critical that the spiritually blind come to acknowledge their inability to see. In fact, the Scriptures would teach us that this in many ways is the first step and being able to see is to admit that you cannot. We see it here even in our passage this morning in Mark chapter 8, because in verse 22 we read, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man, and they begged him to touch him. Do you see it? Uh, the people are acknowledging this man can't See? We can't do anything about it. We're powerless in and of ourselves. And so they bring the man, and they're recognizing his blindness. They're acknowledging their need and their inability to fix it. Some of you may have had experience before with the 12 Steps program. Do you know what the first step of the 12 Steps program is? Admit your addiction, right? And there's something to that. It's not, in fact, until you admit that you were out of control that you gained some control. You think about the alcoholic, and perhaps you've had this experience personally yourself, or maybe in relating to someone else before, but what is, what is the indication of the self-deception of an alcoholic? Well, yes, I drink, but I can handle it. It's not a big deal, Right? And so if you're there, if that's your posture towards the struggle that you have, then you're not going to make any progress. It's not, in fact, until you say, I'm unable to control this, I'm out of control, that you gain some control and you start to make some headway. Listen, my friends, this is true for all of us spiritually. This is what the Bible teaches us about our own condition spiritually, that if we're in a state of denial spiritually, if we say, oh, well, yes, I do some bad things and I'm not perfect, but all in all, I'm a good person and me and God, we're good, then you're not going to make any progress. It's rather when you come to the point and you say, my name is Bert and I'm spiritually blind, that you start to make some progress. It's not until you say, I don't get it, and I can't help myself. I'm hopeless. That you begin to start on the path of recovery. Paul goes on, going back to that passage in 2 Corinthians 4. Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. So he says, we're blind and and we can't see the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, And this is beautiful. In the very next verse he says, for God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts and given the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? And, and what's Paul doing? He's appealing, he's appealing to Genesis chapter 1, right? Genesis chapter 1, if, if you're familiar with the biblical account of creation, God says, Let there be light, and there is light. God speaks light into existence. And and Paul takes that and he applies it to our own souls and the spiritual reality that we all face that we are in naturally in and of ourselves. We are dark in our own souls and we don't see the gospel. We don't see Christ for who He is. We don't see the glory of Christ and who He is. But God speaks, let there be light. And light comes into the soul. And a Christian is freed from the darkness of their unbelieving heart. Sight is restored to the eyes of their heart and they behold the spiritual truths of the gospel and their souls are healed. You see, here in this parable, given the larger context of, I'm sorry, this miracle, given the larger context of Mark chapter 8, and then given the larger context of Scripture in terms of how it speaks of our own spiritual state in terms of blindness, we see that the restoration of physical sight is symbolic of the greater miracle of restoring spiritual sight, which is, my friends, the miracle of Christian conversion. This is what it means to become a Christian. John Newton, in his great hymn, Amazing Grace, which I'm sure we are all have heard at some time, he says, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. That is a very biblical metaphor image. Blind, but by the grace of God, now I see. Now the third thing that we see here in our text this morning is a spiritual truth. And I'm going to begin in verse 22. I want to read it for us and then we're going to consider this spiritual truth, okay? Verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida what I want us to see here initially is the unusual method that Jesus uses to heal this man, okay? If you've been here for our series in the Gospel of Mark, it might remind you of the unusual method that Jesus used to heal the man who was deaf and dumb, the man who could not hear or speak. So in that, par- in that miracle, which was, uh, didn't happen too much, uh, not too long ago in the Gospel of Mark, I think it was chapter 7, uh, there we see that Jesus takes this man away privately. He puts his fingers in the man's ears. okay, And then he touches the man's tongue. He looks up to heaven and sighs. And then he says, be open. And the man is able to speak and he's able to hear. It's a very strange, very odd. And, and we recognize, as we thought about that more deeply, we recognize that what Jesus was doing was, he was using sign language, right? The man Couldn't speak, the man couldn't hear. And so he was communicating to him the healing that he was about to bring into his life by using sign language. It's a beautiful picture of how Christ condescends to him and shows him mercy and compassion. Here we see that there is another strange method that Jesus uses to heal this man. Again, he leads him out into the village, so he takes him away privately. And then he spits. On his eyes and lays his hands on him, and then he asks him, Do you see? And the man doesn't see clearly, right? He says, I see, but I don't really see that well. And then he lays his hands on his eyes again, and his sight is fully restored. Now, immediately we ask the question, Why was the man's sight not immediately restored the first time? In fact, this is the first time in Mark's gospel that we see a person is not healed immediately after Jesus takes action to heal them, whether that's by speaking a word or by touching them. So we ask the question, well, was this blindness outside of Jesus' domain? I mean, maybe this was a specially difficult case or really hard situation here that Jesus was facing, unlike anything He had faced before. It kind of took some extra focus and attention you know, for Jesus to heal this man. It looks like at first that Jesus says, be healed, and it doesn't work. So then Jesus tries again, maybe with a little more effort, kind of puts his back into it, you know, and then he heals him, right? So that's kind of how it looks like at first. But we know that's not true because from other accounts in the Gospel of Mark, we see that Jesus can heal even with a simple thought, right? Or a word or a touch, and blindness in no way is an obstacle to Jesus. Instead, what I believe we see here, and all the commentators I think agree on this, is that the miracle is also a parable, revealing to us a spiritual truth. According to one commentator, there are some nine references in these four or five verses that we've read here, some nine references to sight in just these few verses. And this should be considered in light of the larger context of chapter 8 in which there are repeated references to spiritual blindness and not understanding. So you might remember that after Jesus has fed the 5,000, Then you come into chapter 8, he's miraculously fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. And then you come into chapter 8 and the disciples are presented with a crowd of 4,000 people and they have no food, okay? And instead of the disciples in that situation, instead of them recalling Jesus' miraculous provision when he fed the 5,000, instead they face the 4,000 with what? Panic, right? How is this going to happen? How in the world are we going to feed all these people? And Jesus has to rebuke them for their unbelief, and He feeds the 4,000. And then, following their skepticism in chapter 8, Jesus is confronted with the Pharisees' unbelief as they are demanding that Jesus would provide a sign to prove who He is, that He is in fact sent from God. And then, as we move further in chapter 8, the section that we looked at last week concludes with Jesus warning His disciples of the unbelief of the Pharisees and Herod, and He confronts them with a litany of questions. He asks them, Do you not yet perceive? Do you not yet understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not yet understand? You see, and then following that, we have the, mirror, the healing here. Of the blind man. You see, Jesus' progressive healing of the blind man here reveals no deficiency or weakness in Jesus, but instead it reveals the progressive nature by which he is revealing himself to his disciples. And we see this in the Gospel of Mark. If you think about the relationship between Jesus and his disciples, uh, initially Jesus comes on the scene and he calls his disciples to himself. He says, You know, follow me. And they do. They follow Jesus, but they still don't get it, right? They still don't get it clearly. They still don't understand everything. And so we see them tripping up over themselves all over the place. You might say it's like the blind man who was touched by Jesus and then confessed, I see men, but they are walking. They look like trees walking. In other words, I see, but not clearly as I ought. And in the Gospel of Mark, we're following the disciples along as they see more and more of Jesus and the strength and clarity of their spiritual insight increases. So here's the spiritual truth that we see from this miracle, which is in fact a parable. Spiritual sight is progressive. We come to understand and experience more of Christ in stages. Now, from that spiritual truth, as we conclude here this morning, I want to give three, quickly here, three implications, okay, of this spiritual truth. The first implication is this. Seeing is a gift. Seeing is a gift. As we've noted, this man was utterly incapable of curing his own blindness. He could not see, and there was nothing he could do to make himself see. This is why he had to go to Jesus. And Jesus granted him the gift of sight. My friends, the Scriptures tell us that as well, spiritual sight is a gift. This truth that is symbolized here in the miracle is made explicit in the count that follows. So, as I said, what we're going to see in the following passage is that Jesus... Ask his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter makes the great confession, right? You are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. Now, Mark's gospel, he doesn't include this, but in Matthew's gospel, do you know what Jesus says immediately following that? Blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Spiritual sight is a gift from God. This man could not cure his own blindness. His friends couldn't cure his own blindness. All they could do, the best they could do, was to lead him to Jesus. And my friends, it's true for each of us as well. Understand that if you're considering the claims of Christ, if you're considering the claims of Christianity, at the end of the day, yes, you must pray and you must read the Bible and you must give it thought and you must wrestle with it. But at the end of the day, you can't just decide that you'll up and see. You can't just say, well, I haven't seen clearly as I ought in the past, but I think today I want to see now and just see and follow Jesus. My friend, seeing is a gift. And recognizing that, it causes us to be dependent upon Christ. Not to think we can take this thing up independently in and of ourselves, but that we must admit, first of all, that we can't see. And in fact, by God's grace, that's the first sign that you are in fact seeing. The second implication is this that many come to Christ in stages. Many come to Christ in stages. The Apostle Paul wrote uh, most or much, we could say, of the New Testament, and his conversion story is well known. Uh, he was a zealous enemy of Christ church. He was persecuting Christians and even killing them when, by God's grace, he was radically changed by the gospel and he became the great apostle of the Christian faith. And through him, the gospel went to the whole known world. He spread the gospel to the whole known world at that time. Many of us have influenced rightly so, and for good reason, have been influenced by Paul's conversion experience. I mean, we read it in the Bible in Acts chapter 9 and other places there are accounts of it. We're amazed by it. We reflect on it. And as a result, though, many of us expect that our own Christian conversion should be just as drastic or dramatic. My friends, I want to point out this morning that there is another model of Christian conversion in the Bible. And it is the model of Peter's conversion, right? Peter and the other disciples, in contrast to the Apostle Paul, are, you might say, converted in stages. Jesus calls them to follow him, and they did. As we mentioned, they don't get it right. They're fumbling all over themselves, right? Jesus comes to the point, he asks them the question, Who do you say that I am? Peter says, You're the Christ. They continue to follow him, but they continue to fumble all over themselves. And then at Jesus' death, right? This is, the, this is the point at which Jesus needs them most. And we will see this in Mark's gospel. They abandon Jesus. They forsake Him. And then Jesus is raised from the dead and He confronts His disciples. And they see Him, the resurrected Christ. But even still, then we see in the Scriptures that some of them doubted. But then they came to to believe and to embrace Christ and follow Him with all their heart. And so, there, here's this narrative in the Gospel of the disciples. And as you consider this narrative of the disciples and, and their walk with Christ, we recognize that in some, at some place along that narrative, Peter, and we could say the other disciples as well, crossed over from death to life. But you know, if you examine that narrative, it's almost impossible to tell when it happened. Have you ever considered that? It's almost impossible to determine when exactly it took place. My friends, that's the experience of many. Uh, let, me make, uh, let, let me make a few distinctions here, okay? Conversion is a one time event. Okay? That's a word that we use to speak of one becoming a Christian. Conversion. And so at conversion, one in fact, as Jesus touched the eyes of the blind man, one in fact is given eyes to see and they trust in Christ. And at that moment they are His, not partially, but completely. One time event. Justification is a, another word we use that is a biblical word that speaks of the experience of what takes place when one becomes a Christian. And we would say as well that justification is a one time event event. One is persuaded by the gospel, by the claims of Christ, that He died on the cross for their sins, that He took the penalty for their sins, and they trust in Christ and they believe in Him. And at that point, in that moment, boom, they are forgiven. They are justified. They are declared righteous before God. They are acquitted, forgiven, totally accepted and loved by God. Not partially, but completely. one-time event. So conversion, justification, is a one-time event. But the time leading up to the point of conversion or justification often takes place in stages. And maybe you're in one of those stages even now. One gets a Bible and they start to read it and they get a better idea. Maybe they start with the Gospel of Mark or one of the other biographies about Jesus in the Bible and they begin to get a better idea of who Jesus is. And then maybe they start attending church and spending time with other Christians and they get better clarity about what the Gospel is. And then they begin to pray for themselves and confess their sins to God and they begin to see changes in their lives and over time they become increasingly confident that they are in fact Christians, that they are trusting in Christ and that they have been forgiven by His grace. And you talk to them and you say, well, when did you become a Christian? And they might say to you, well, I'm not really sure. But I know that somewhere along in that process, over the time period, maybe it was a few months, maybe it was a few weeks, that I realized I could not save myself. And I trusted in Christ. And I believe He saved me. And I can see the fruit of it in my life now. My friends, I don't know where you might be in that process. But let me encourage you to continue to pursue Christ. You know, this man, Jesus touches his eyes and he says, Can you see? Martin Lloyd-Jones, in a sermon that he preached on this text, says that if the man hadn't been honest and said to Jesus, I can't see, he might have been looking at trees walking around the rest of his life. Right? Be honest. Be honest. Be real about where you're at spiritually. Don't fake it. Don't deceive yourself. Continue to pursue Christ. and Ask that He would grant you sight. And through Christ, He will open your eyes. By the power of Christ, He has the power to open your eyes to the reality of the gospel and to save you. The third implication and last implication that I want us to see this morning from our text, is that Christians grow in stages. Christians grow in stages. So, spiritual sight is a gift, many come to Christ in stages, and then Christians grow in stages. So not only is this miracle, which is a parable, an illustration of Christian conversion for some, or the stages that lead to Christian conversion, but it's also a vivid illustration of the Christian life. As men and women who have been granted sight, spiritual sight, by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, we have to admit that we do not see everything clearly as we ought. In fact, we are far from it. But we grow in the grace of God as by His grace we see things more clearly, perceive the gospel more clearly, and the truth of the scriptures more clearly, and how it, prov- how it applies to our lives more clearly, even on a daily basis. Some of you wear glasses or contacts. And um, I'm very thankful for... Uh, the medical advances that we've made when it comes to sight and that sort of thing because if I didn't have my contacts in right now, I couldn't tell who any of you are, okay? But one of the things we recognize as much as a blessing as glasses and contacts are, they help us to see clearly, but they're not sufficient in and of themselves because as I know, six months or a year from now or two years from now, my eyesight is probably going to be worse than it is now. The eyesight is gradually declining, It's imperceivable if we look at it from a day-to-day basis, right? We can't actually see it occurring, but it takes place over a number of weeks and months and even years, and then we come to a point where we realize, well, I'm not seeing signs as well as I once was, or I can't read the uh, board as, as well as I used to be able to. But listen, my friends, for the Christian, the converse is true. Our sight is not steadily declining, But by God's grace, it is steadily increasing. Our spiritual sight is gradually becoming better and better. And oftentimes, and this is something important for us to know, oftentimes it is, in fact, unperceivable. So if we were to look and examine the difference from one day to the next, we might be rather discouraged. And so we shouldn't always be be examining to say, well, do I see things better today than I did yesterday? Well, I don't know. But you know what? By God's grace, as you continue to go to Him in prayer and in His Word and ask for spiritual sight, as we look back over a few weeks or months or even years, we see that by God's grace, our spiritual sight is increasing. That we are growing in the knowledge and the grace of God. This is why David prays in Psalm 119 verse 18, Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law. That's a wonderful prayer for each of us to pray every time we come to the Scriptures, right? Or at least for that to be the posture of our hearts, that we're dependent upon God for Him to give us spiritual sight. This is why the Apostle Paul, writing to a church, to a group of Christians, the church in Ephesus says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might. So Christians, and Paul is saying, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you that God would open the eyes of your heart to see more of the glory and the blessing and the promises and the privileges that you have in the gospel. Because you don't see, right? That's the assumption, right? Otherwise you wouldn't pray this prayer because you don't see them as clearly as you ought. This is a great vision for our own church, right? A church that longs to see Jesus more. That's the kind of church we want to be. Not a church that's smug. Oh, I've been given spiritual sight, I'm good. Not a church that's content, I've seen enough. No, but a church that's hungry and longs to see more and more of Christ. We do not see Him clearly as we ought, and we acknowledge that in humility. We are a work in progress, but by God's grace, the ambition that we have as a church is to cry out, open the eyes of our hearts that we might see Him more. And we pray that prayer with joy and confidence because we trust that Jesus loves to answer that prayer. Brothers and sisters, that's why we're gathered here this morning, isn't it? We want to see more clearly who Jesus is. That's why in just a few moments we're going to take the Lord's table because the Lord's table is a reminder to us of who Jesus is, right? It's another opportunity as we break the bread and as we take the cup to be reminded of what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. To see more of the beauty of His death. To see more of God's hatred for sin and the wrath that He poured out on His Son in our place so that we could be forgiven. To see more of the righteousness of Christ that covers us completely and entirely so that when Christ looks upon us, He does not see our sin, but He sees the perfect record of His Son. My friends, may that be our prayer this morning. And every day going forward as a church, Christ, God, I want to see You more. Reveal to me more of Your grace and more of the gospel. Let's go to Him in prayer. Father, we thank You and praise You for how patient and kind You were with the disciples and how progressively over time you gave them increasing understanding and knowledge and experience of who you are and of your grace. And oh God, we thank you and praise you this morning that you are likewise so patient with us. Oh, Father, I pray and I, I ask that this would be, I would just be echoing the prayer of every one of us here this morning. That you would open the eyes of our hearts. You would give us spiritual sight that we would see as we are to see that we would come in agreement and submission to Your Word and to the Gospel. Lord, that we would know who You are in all Your fullness and glory, and that we would follow You with all our hearts. Lord, we pray that even now as we come to the Lord's table, that You would allow us to see something more of Your grace and mercy for us in Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.